You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's September 16th. The Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade may have serious implications for the U.S. Department of Defense. After all, women make up about 17% of the active-duty military population and are the fastest-growing subpopulation in the military. Women's health is critical to force readiness and the overall well-being of U.S. troops. RAND researchers estimate that between 5,000 and 7,400 active-duty service women and civilian women employed by the Pentagon seek abortion care in a given year. With the constitutional right to an abortion revoked, those women may face added challenges in obtaining these services. And for DOD, the potential negative consequences include increased attrition, more duty restrictions among women service members, plus more scenarios in which women are not able to deploy, and higher health care, child care, and education costs. Ultimately, the researchers argue, the Supreme Court ruling on abortion could lead to a decrease in force readiness and U.S. national security. While DOD is legally limited in its ability to respond to this challenge, there are steps that the Pentagon can take to help ensure that service women and DOD civilian women have access to the full scope of health care. For example, it could improve education about available reproductive health care services, provide more contraceptive counseling, and expand civilian employees' access to services at military treatment facilities. Another new RAND paper out this week also looks at challenges facing women who serve, more specifically, women veterans. Just as the number of women serving in the active-duty military is growing, the number of veteran women is also expected to increase, about 6% over the next decade. That's despite the fact that the overall number of U.S. veterans is projected to decrease by about 17% over the same time period. Veteran women differ from their male counterparts and from non-veteran women, and so do their needs. For example, they are more racially and ethnically diverse than veteran men. They are more likely to be divorced or separated. And the average veteran woman is 51 years old, 14 years younger than the average veteran man. Veteran women also face barriers to gender-specific health care, including family planning increased pressure to balance work and caregiving, and higher rates of PTSD, depression, eating disorders, and other mental and emotional health conditions. The authors of the paper say that it's important to expand the evidence base for improving the well-being of veteran women. They recommend focusing research in several key areas. These include collecting more feedback on service women's experiences when transitioning to civilian life, examining the root causes of disparities in labor force representation and earnings between veteran women and men, and identifying how combat exposure affects veteran women's mental and physical health. It's unclear what the post-pandemic world will look like, or when exactly the pandemic will be over. But one thing is clear, the normality of the pre-pandemic world will not return. 
This is why it's so important to think about the lasting effects of a global health crisis like COVID-19, says Rand's Brian Michael Jenkins. In a new book, Jenkins draws on history to consider the long-term devastation of pandemics, including how they affect the economy, the political landscape, and our social psychology. Consider, for example, the 1918 flu pandemic. Research suggests that it had broad and long-lasting societal impacts. The social disruption that it caused led to a significant erosion of people's trust. And this lack of trust appears to have been inherited by descendants and persisted for decades. Survey data shows that those whose parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents came from countries that suffered high mortality rates in the 1918 flu pandemic were significantly more mistrustful than those whose ancestors came from less affected countries. Another example, the pandemics of the Middle Ages prompted the spread of conspiracy theories and bizarre beliefs, a phenomenon we've seen during the COVID-19 era, too. Also, during the Black Death in the Middle Ages, there was increased disorder. The fabric of society was frayed. This is not dissimilar to what we see today, as the number of murders and of mass shootings have both increased dramatically, along with a trend toward increasing random violence. It's worth noting that this trend preceded the pandemic, although it appears to have been accelerated by COVID-19. Much remains unknown about these lasting effects of the pandemic. Historians still argue about the impacts of the Black Death, and that pandemic occurred nearly 700 years ago. But it's safe to say that some of the effects of COVID-19 will be hard to reverse. Pandemics are not slain like mythical dragons, Jenkins writes. They retreat, perhaps only temporarily, leaving behind a trail of death and destruction, and an anxious population. While Jenkins was looking back to better understand the pandemic, another RAND researcher, Jennifer Bowie, wrote this week about looking forward and preparing for the next global health crisis. Bowie, an internationally recognized epidemiologist, is the lead author of a new report that looks at how nations around the world might model future pandemic responses after South Korea's COVID-19 response, which she calls, quote, near perfect. The data backs up South Korea's success. The country maintained a low case fatality rate of 1.2% during the first outbreak compared with 9.3% in Italy, 7.8% in Iran, and 9.2% in New York City during the initial outbreak. South Korea also flattened the curve without a large-scale and strict lockdown, which could have led to economic paralysis or social despair. In 2020, the nation's gross domestic product contracted by only 1%, compared with 5.3% in Japan, 3.7% in the U.S., and 11.2% in the U.K. So, how did South Korea do it? Bowie points out some key features of its response. For example, the government developed an early alert system, initiating the first national infectious disease alert on January 3, 2020, 10 days before the novel virus was identified, 20 days before China's national alert, and months before the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic on March 11th. 
South Korea also created a centralized response system, effectively used information sharing and communications technology, and created a public-private partnership to develop biomedical products. And the fact that South Korea had a large public health workforce allowed it to carry out case tracing, isolation, and a multiple-track hospital triage system. Adopting some of these practices could help nations around the world, including the United States, better respond to future pandemics. As the war in Ukraine continues, Western sanctions are ensnaring more and more Russian business leaders. The sanctions target those who the White House has identified as elites and family members who back Putin, or those who have enriched themselves at the expense of the Russian people, elevated family members to high-ranking positions, or sit atop Russia's largest companies and provide resources to support the Ukraine invasion. Some Russian business leaders may be sanctioned not for a specific cause, but rather are swept up in what is becoming general economic warfare. According to Rand's William Courtney, there are three primary ways that high-profile Russians might reduce their risk of being sanctioned. First, criticize the war in Ukraine. Second, blame the Kremlin for the conflict. And third, assist Ukraine and its people. Russian business leaders or their companies could, for example, support Ukrainian refugees or cease collecting on Ukrainian debts. They could also help in countries that suffer collateral damage from sanctions, such as those in Central Asia. Russian business leaders may think that they are stranded in a perfect storm, Courtney says. They fear the Kremlin's power, but may also recognize that its war has destroyed unprecedented business value, threatening their success. Clearly, they face some tough choices, but those choices are theirs to make. Rand is a nonprofit organization that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on today's episode, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We'll see you next week.